You're listening to Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas. You're listening to Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas. Just past the midday mark on this, the 14th of January, 2019. We're two weeks into the new year, and uh, you should be well back at work. Those at the private schools, you'll be taking your children back to school tomorrow. Whether that's a relief or something sad, I don't know. But um, we well and truly back into the new year. A little bit later in the show, I'm going to be chatting to anti-hijacking instructor and author of Carjacking, Malcolm Sachs, about the all-importance of carjacking, how it impacts on people's lives, and why he's now decided to write a book on it. But first, my take on the week that's passed. Um, firstly, happy birthday to the oldest liberation movement in Africa. The African National Congress celebrated its 107th birthday uh, this weekend at the Mozambique Stadium in KwaZulu-Natal. Um, for those that are in the leadership of the African National Congress as part of the birthday wishes, I hope they take into account um, the way the party's gone the past few years in respect of um, corruption, in respect of service delivery. And I hope that a lot of introspection takes place prior to this all-important year, 2019, where we hold um, another election, which will be an election on the 25th celebration of our democracy. That's a quarter of, cent- a, quarter of a century that we've had a democratic South Africa, and still we don't see the amount of service delivery being rolled out to the most needy that should be getting rolled out, and we see an increase in corruption on a daily basis. It was reported in yesterday's City Press that Dudazane Zuma, son of President Jacob Zuma, had links to Radovan Kretscher. Of course, what anything involving the underworld and organized crime, none other than yours truly was quoted in that article as saying that um, the powers that be were extremely upset when it came out that Dudazane Zuma had a friendship and a relationship with um, Radovan Kretscher. And to this day, it still surprises me the symbiotic relationship between politicians and organized crime figures. One just has to look at the allegations made regarding Mazzotti and illegal tobacco and his relationship with the, the head of the EFF and the, the supposed funding of the EFF and the supposed funding of the EFF's original registration at the IEC being made via Mazzotti if one reads um, certain stories, if one believes certain rumors. So it's nothing new, but it's something that needs to be addressed because we become a captured state when organized crime figures have control over very senior politicians or family members of politicians. It was announced in Zimbabwe this weekend that the price of fuel has doubled. Not just that, the currency has devalued and there is a shortage of dollars in the country. Are we going the same route in Zimbabwe as we did a few years ago with hyperinflation? Well, I really hope not because it has a direct knock-on on South Africa. Um, South Africa is Zimbabwe's biggest trade partner. Um, South Africa relies heavily on imports into Zimbabwe, and Zimbabwe relies on exports through South Africa. And imports that don't come necessarily from South Africa, but that come from overseas, are transported through South Africa, from the Bay of Durban all the way through to Bitebridge into Zimbabwe. So it's an extremely important trade partner. But not just that. If Zimbabwe implodes once again, if hyperinflation reaches an all-time high, we are once again going to have an influx of foreign nationals, whether legal or illegal. And that brings me to a very 
interesting topic. When one looks at the crisis that's taking place in Zimbabwe, the unemployment, the hyperinflation, the, the doubling of the fuel price, which you know which is going to have a knock-on effect on all other consumables, services, etc., one has to wonder if you can draw parallels between the need for a stronger border on, on the South African-Zimbabwe border, much the same as Trump is calling for in America. Herman Mashaba, the mayor of Johannesburg, has come out very strongly in speaking about illegal um, um, people in South Africa and their alleged nefarious activities. Whether one can draw a parallel to open borders, whether one can draw a parallel to what's happening in neighboring countries, I don't know what studies have been done. But just a very interesting narrative that at the very same time, we have the, the, the Trump border saga taking place in the south of the United States. We have something happening in South Africa very similar in the north. And a lot of blame for crime in the city of Johannesburg is being laid at the feet of illegal aliens. Something that is very interesting and something that we'll definitely be following. I'd like to remind you the views expressed on the show are not necessarily those of High FM. You're listening to Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas. You're listening to Confidential Brief live in Johannesburg on 101.9 FM and streaming worldwide on chaifm.com. Joining me in studio now is Malcolm Sachs. Malcolm is no stranger to the show. He's a returning friend. He was on air with us three years ago when we were chatting about the, the, the scourge of hijacking, especially with car hijackings. Malcolm, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, uh, Chad. I really appreciate the uh, opportunity of being here again. Malcolm, three years since we chatted, has there been much change with regards to the incidents of, of car hijackings? Um, well, uh, I think we could broadly look at, at uh, crime across the board um, in general terms, with the exception of a few, uh, few specific areas where it might have dropped uh, slightly. But in general, uh, crime overall uh, is on the increase. And vehicle hijacking is one of those crimes which has uh, risen quite substantially. So just to give you a a very interesting statistic is that car hijacking increases since 2012 have gone up by 77.5%, which uh, in the period of, of... just on seven years is is very disturbing. Well, you one of a, a three-part series. What we did is we've been discussing car hijackings because it has a direct impact on families, especially since it can escalate. It could start off as a home invasion where the people initially came for the car, but because the gate is open and they see there's no security, they then go in the house. That can be exceptionally traumatic. But we're now seeing that people are being kidnapped for their for their pins, etc. So in the last couple of weeks, we've chatted to people about from from the industry um, regarding and measures that can be taken from a vehicle perspective to to guard that vehicle and um, we've spoken about different gadgets that type of thing but today you here to tell us the stories of the people that have gone through this and I think nothing can be more important than relating those experiences and this is why you've written a book tell us about that absolutely so uh, the, the the reason behind uh, the writing of of carjacked this simply um, links to my passion to uh, helping people, making people aware of this heinous crime and uh, trying to get people to be co- more cognizant uh, 
of the fact that we are not living in a, uh, an ideal situation by far. We're living in a crime-ridden society, and people really need to, to be proactive rather than reactive. And I think one of the biggest problems that we have in this country is that because there is so much crime, not necessarily just vehicle crime, but all types of crime, uh, the average citizen is so sick and tired of crime and being involved in security measures, the related costs of those security measures, that uh, many, many people have decided that they're rather just going to become ostriches and they're going to say, it's never going to happen to me and just try and ignore it. The problem that this brings about is that, unfortunately, many of those people end, end up being uh, on the receiving end of the, the crime. Um, many are injured and, unfortunately, many are killed. Let's talk about you. What made you decide to get involved in educating people um, how not to become a statistic? And if, God forbid, they did become a statistic, what to do during an incident such as a, as a carjacking? Were you yourself a victim or is it just something that you decided was something that needed to be addressed? Okay, it's a very good point. Um, my my involvement in security uh, per se goes back to 1984 um, when I was more involved in safety and security related uh, a type of equipment supplying uh, the military, um, other law enforcement bodies with uh, specialized equipment. And that progressed on to being involved with um, one of the major vehicle tracking companies um, where my eyes were obviously open to um, the problems that existed and the, uh, the seriousness of these crimes. But uh, as far as my personal um, desire and passion to educating people, um, I was hijacked with my um, wife and children um, in 1994 in our driveway uh, it was an extremely traumatic experience, and I've often said to people uh, during my, my military training in the Air Force, I spent six months in Angola, and I found that the trauma uh, in our driveway in 1995, 1994, was far more serious and affected me far more than the six months I had spent in Angola with rockets being fired and, and, uh, and um, uh, a war going on. And I think it was the the effect that this had on me that decided that I had dealt with and handled this particular hijacking, I thought, in an intelligent way. And clearly it was because none of us were physically injured. I say physically because obviously the, the mental side effects uh, remained. And it was those mental side effects that brought to the fore in me in knowing what to do, how to react, how to respond, what not to do in order to keep alive. And I then decided that uh, I would become more entrenched and involved in uh, uh, teaching and training of uh, vehicle anti-hijacking measures and survival uh, modes. And, um, and ultimately, that's what culminated in me uh, deciding to write the book Carjacked. It's a very interesting point you raised about being trained in the SADF and having, you know, experienced um, contacts in Angola, etc., and this being more traumatic. And it's something I relate to very well. Um, shortly after leaving the military and being appointed as, as head of security for Saudi Bank at Bedford Center, we had a shootout. And 
coming from the military where it was expected and we were trained for it and now having a shootout in a civilian environment, it, it was, and I can't use the word on, on, um, on air, but it's, it, it's mind with, with the word F straight afterwards because that's what it was to me. It was so bizarre. And I think this is the big problem in South Africa is that so many people of a specific age group, um, underwent military training and think that they prepared for all of this. But when it comes to having your family involved and when it comes to being on your home soil, it's very, very different to the training you received in the military. Um, do you feel that you may have had your masculinity taken away by not being able to respond accordingly? Very interesting questions. Uh, I'd just like to, to uh, go back a, a step and I'd like to say that um, specifically relating to what you said with your, your incident. Um, I think the major difference to start with, um, with my situation of having been um, in a war situation in Angola and then in a, um, a civil war situation in my driveway was that when I was up at the border, I pretty much had to take care of me. I was looking after myself. Um, even though obviously you, you, you defended your buddies wherever you could, but it was myself that I was looking after. In my driveway, it became a very personal attack in that I was the male figure and I was the one who, uh, ideally was there to protect my wife and two young children. And this, um, uh, changed the, the, um, whole perception of what I was going through completely. Um, in order to be able to, to deal with this situation. Um, I, I think that you've raised another very important issue. Unfortunately, uh, on many of the training courses that I give, I find that women are extremely attentive, um, uh, teenagers very attentive, elderly people very attentive. When it comes to the average South African male, we have attitudes of, I played rugby at school, I was a police reservist, I did my military training, um, I've punched a few people in a pub on a Saturday night, so I can stop bullets. And I'm untouchable and I'm infallible. And uh, I've said to so many people on training who've sat there looking up at the roof as if to say, you know, I don't need to hear about this, I know exactly what to do. And I've said to so many people, you know, in this type of hijack situation, there are really only two options. You've, you've got fight or flight. And you have to make that decision as to whether you're going to try and fight the guy who's got the nine mil pressed against your temple or whether you're going to submit and do all the things that I suggest you should do on our training course in order to keep alive. Because at the end of the day, um, for you to, to try and act macho and be able to turn around and tell your buddies, I managed to get the guy in a headlock, kick him in the stomach and this and that and whatever at the risk of taking a bullet to the temple, I don't think is worth it. Some very interesting comments raised by Malcolm, especially regarding ego and masculinity when it comes to how to react in such a dangerous situation. We'll be chatting more about the book Carjacking straight after the break. You're listening to Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas. Back to the serious stuff, and nothing can be more serious than the anguish, the trauma, and sometimes 
the death that is caused by a hijacking that may go wrong. And to ensure that hijackings don't go wrong and maybe to prepare people for it, there are training courses offered. And one of those courses is offered by none other than Malcolm Sachs. But Malcolm, I want to talk more about your book before we talk about what training can be given. Um, what brought about you now wanting to write this book? Was it that there were so many stories to share? Was it a way for you to give the analogies? Or is it just a way for you to work through all that you've now had? And um, because reliving these experiences with these different victims can't be easy. Absolutely. And I think, I think, uh, it, it probably encompasses all of what you've uh, suggested. I think it's a way of me, uh, sharing and, um, and putting out there to as many people who will read the book, uh, the various types of hijackings that take place because there are so many different, uh, shapes and forms that these things come about. Um, it's also certainly a way of me being able to offer guidance and, uh, sharing my know-how because, uh, rather than just writing uh, a collection of short stories, and there are 21 different stories uh, in my book. At the end of each story, I give the author's comments on what I believe the particular person or people did wrong and how I believe they could have avoided that hijacking and in the cases when they couldn't avoid it, how they could have survived that hijacking where there was a fatality. And uh, for me, it's it's a passion. It doesn't matter whether it's a book that I've written or whether I'm amongst uh, uh, associates or friends. It's something that I always try and put across, instill, share with people. And so much so that, I mean, I can be driving um, along Louis Botha Avenue and I'll spot um, a woman driving along in her cabriolet BMW uh, gold jewelry all over her hands, the roof is down, she's on her cell phone, and she's driving right past the township. And I will actually put my window down and say, what are you, what are you doing? How can you, you're asking to be attacked. You know, you're waving a flag and saying, here I am, covered in gems, expensive car, cell phone, come and get me. And people look at me as if I'm absolutely crazy or I've lost the plot. But I think it's it's just my um, ongoing um, want of trying to educate people and trying to get people to become more aware that this is a reality. This is something that we live with every single minute of every day. Just to give a quick statistic, at the moment, according to the latest uh, SAPS uh, stats that were released in Parliament in August last year, 32 hijackings, um, uh, um, uh, a day in southern, uh, in, sorry, 32, uh, uh, one hijacking every 32 minutes or 46 hijackings every day. And that gives us a total of approximately 16,700 per year. And whilst we clearly are never going to uh, rid ourselves of this uh, modern day form of highwayman attack, um, by people being educated and by people being given the knowledge of how to react, how to respond, what to do, what not to do. I firmly believe that we can bring those those figures down. The, the statistics you've just given are frightening because we seem to 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 be in denial that crime is still so prevalent. In the wake of the democratic South Africa, when we were all singing Kumbaya with the Rainbow Nation, etc., 
um, crime suddenly surfaced and became more prolific. And it became more prolific for a number of reasons. Crime has always been here. It just wasn't reported on as effectively during the apartheid era. The apartheid government wanted everybody to think that they lived in la-la land and that everything was perfect. So Section 100 of the Emergency Regulations prevented the media from reporting on certain things. Then, of course, our crime stats in South Africa didn't include the homelands. It didn't include the TBVC states. So our crime stats were specific to white areas which were very well policed because they had to protect a white minority. And those resources then had to be deployed on a national basis into the townships where the police were no longer trying to prevent anti-apartheid activists from staging a march, but they now had to actually stop crime from occurring within the township environment, which was exceptionally prolific but wasn't reported on. Since the crime became so well reported on, etc., there seemed to become a lull in people's understanding of crime. And I think this is what's so important. Crime is not going to go away. We do not live in a perfect society, and crime is not specific to South Africa. It's a worldwide phenomena. So we're going to take a break now. When we come back, I want you to be able to help our listeners understand what they need to do to take cognizance of their surroundings, to prevent themselves from becoming a statistic, and if they do, find themselves in such a traumatic situation, what to do during it, and most importantly, what to do after it. You're listening to Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas. I'm chatting to Malcolm Sachs about the scourge of carjackings, um, which have now become more than just carjackings. You're now also seeing them becoming home invasions, um, kidnappings where people are held to see whether there's a tracking device in the vehicle, um, also to take a person's uh, ATM card and to try to keep their PIN card, to keep them as late as possible, to maybe get a withdrawal before midnight and a withdrawal after midnight. And it's just very, very scary. And while we were taking a break, myself and Malcolm were chatting off air about the fact that South Africa has become almost like Las Vegas and Israel. Las Vegas had to come up with certain security measures because of its gambling industry. And because of that, they became the camera experts of the world. Israel, for obvious reasons, needed security from explosives, bombings, etc., and they've become worldwide security specialists. And out of South Africa, we've had a lot of innovation take place. But nothing replaces a person being prepared through good old-fashioned training. So, Malcolm, we know you've got this book, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the book a little bit later because I want to hear some of the stories. But let's talk about the training aspect. Why is training so important for you? Thanks, Chad. Uh, the, the training aspect, uh, just to, to sum it up literally in, in one sentence, is for me, knowledge is power. And if you don't have knowledge in whatever the topic is, obviously you don't have uh, the, the power to fight it or, 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 or work through it. Um, I find on the training courses that I give, and it's right across the board, whether it's to, to men or women, as I've already mentioned, that a lot of men have got a, a gung-ho attitude and think that they're, uh, they're bulletproof and invincible. But um, right across the board, I tend to find that uh, there are a lot of myths, there are a lot of misconceptions, there are a lot of uh, um, Ideas that people have that they've heard from other people and from friends, etc., etc., about how things happen, how things don't happen. And I think a key uh, aspect to this whole thing is something that you've mentioned twice now. And that is that whereas in the early days the very first hijacking in this country or car, carjacking took place in 1984, 
and in those days, a carjacking was simply a carjacking. It was a case of either um, a, a couple of people walking down the road deciding they needed transport and hijacking a vehicle or syndicates or organized crime or whatever it was. But it's developed into far more than that now, and this is the worrying part in that the very, very first thing that everyone needs to be cognizant of is that almost every single crime that takes place requires a car or a vehicle. It's very, very seldom that you're going to find uh, people going in and robbing a bank or doing a cash-in-transit uh, um, hold-up and attack or a home invasion on foot because clearly uh, it's not going to help them when they need to get away in a hurry. So what does this lead to? It leads to them needing transport, and the best possible transport they can have is to have a hijacked or stolen vehicle. They've changed the identity of the vehicle, often respraying it, uh, false number plates, etc., etc., and it'll have been hijacked very, very recently. So before the, the authorities have even had time to look for and try and locate the vehicle, often they have... Uh, uh, discovered where the tracking device is, is hidden. They've thrown it out the side of the road or into a bucket of water, and they now make use of this vehicle for, uh, to, to uh, commit additional crimes. The same applies with the home invasion situation. And as you said, so often the, uh, nowadays the home invasions tend to be linked to the carjacking because they've either carjacked a person in a shopping center parking lot, forced them to drive to their home, forced them to allow access into the home where they now steal everything that they possibly can, load it up into that car that they've carjacked and drive off in that vehicle. But in many other instances, uh, they will uh, come on foot to do a home invasion, realizing that when they leave, that home invasion, they're going to be able to take one or two vehicles with them and get away at speed. Very frightening situation that, we, that we're in. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to find out how you can get a copy of the book Carjacking. It is available online, and we're going to chat about how you can get involved with the training side of things. You're listening to Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas. We're talking about the all-important situation revolving around what you should do in a carjacking situation. And Malcolm Sachs has been able to put his experiences over the years in training people, dealing with people that have suffered um, as a result of, of, of carjackings, their experiences into a book, and he's given advice on each of those chapters. Malcolm, you mentioned 21 short stories. That's correct. Yes. Any one of those short stories stand out in particular for you? I, th- I think I think uh, it's 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 a bit difficult. Uh, they they probably all have uh, a huge amount of significance, but uh, one very important one I think that stands out is that you know this country um, uh, relies quite heavily on uh, on tourism, and the hospitality industry is extremely reliant on international uh, travel to this country, and. The moment there is bad news with regards to the security situation in this country, it obviously spreads far and wide. 
you start getting uh, uh, overseas uh, governments putting out security warnings to to travelers, don't go to this country, don't go to that country. And I think those are, are, are very scary um, things that take place. So one of the stories that stand out for me was uh, a story of two couples who had traveled to South Africa from Switzerland. It had been a lifelong dream. They were now retired, and they'd wanted to come to Africa to see the Big Five and visit the beauty that South Africa had to offer. And uh, because they had literally come here thinking that this was a small piece of paradise, uh, which it is to an extent, uh, but they had come pretty unprepared with regards to the high level of crime and the security risks that um, that are attached to that. And uh, in visiting um, uh, the Eastern Cape, Coffee Bay, in fact, uh, they had hired a, a very expensive uh, brand of 4x4 simply because the, the, the one um, uh, tourist drove that particular make of vehicle in Switzerland. So he hired the same vehicle here because he was used to it. And they had uh, explored the, most of the countryside, and their final part of their trip was going to be spent in the Coffee Bay area. And they decided to visit Hole in the Wall, and they went off on a two-and-a-half-hour hike from the hotel they were staying at to, to visit Hole in the Wall. And unfortunately, they, um, they had been watched, they had been monitored by hotel staff, etc., etc., who had seen the expensive watches, the jewelry, the, uh, the expensive vehicle that they had hired, etc., etc. And these people were attacked. And... The, the story tells of all the traumas and ordeals that they went through and how they, they did ultimately survive without any fatalities, but with huge amounts of trauma and stress. Uh, so that is one of the stories that stand out. And, you know, I think the, the stories that I have, have written um, show how, unfortunately, the hijacking or carjacking scenario doesn't only end with the vehicle. It leads to possible rape. It leads, it leads to people being beaten up. It leads to people being shot in the back and paralyzed permanently. It leads to fatalities. And the traumas that families have to go through um, once an incident like this has taken place are ongoing and, and terrible. How does somebody contact you with regards to training to prevent this from happening or to know how to react should this happen to them? Okay, so there are a few different ways. Uh, we, uh, the, the name of the, the training is HAS, Hijack Avoidance and Survival Skills. Uh, we have a dedicated Facebook page, which is called HAS, Hijack Avoidance and Survival Skills. Um, I obviously can give out a contact cell phone number. Um, it's 083-282-6306. Let's talk about the book in closing. Um, how does somebody get their hands on this book, or more so, is it available electronically? At the moment, uh, the book has been published electronically. It's available through Amazon.com uh, as a uh, Kindle uh, download, but it can also obviously be downloaded through Amazon onto an electronic uh, device. Uh, the name of the book is Carjacked, and uh, at the moment it is... Uh, Available, as I say, on Amazon at $3.99 American dollars. So that relates to about 55 odd rand.
Well, that's a very reasonable price for peace of mind, and obviously people within a family can pass it amongst themselves. So if you want to find out more about the book, it's Carjacked. Um, it's available on Amazon by Malcolm Sachs. If you want to find out more about the training, it's Hass, H-A-S-S, and that's on Facebook. I've actually followed it for years. It has great information. It also updates um, the public um, as to incidents that have occurred, etc. Malcolm, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Chad. I appreciate the opportunity. And I look forward to chatting again. Let's time. Let's not uh, wait three years. Absolutely, I look forward to that too. Thank you so much.